Good afternoon, everyone. This is the DOLW Podcast 3. This is May 30th, 2021. And we have been reading from The Call of the Laity by O.V. Cruz. He is going to be with us again today in his writings. Um, We have been reading from the first chapter, which has to do with Canon Law 2003, Paragraph 1, CIC. And um, we've been reading about Christ's faithful and who who we are. And today we're going to start with the called. That's C-A-L-L-E-D, called. And we're going to go on and read a little more. Um, This, again, is about the faithful, the Christian faithful, um, being called each according to his or her own particular condition, exercise the mission, God entrusted to the church to fulfill the world. And that'll help us to conclude from this chapter. Okay, so I'm going to begin. The section we're starting with is called, and again we're talking about the Christian faithful in the book of the Call of the Laity. The law says that every Christian faithful is called to take part or to participate in the mission of the church. And remember, we were talking about canon law in the very beginning of this book. Um, Each section that O.B. Cruz writes about, he also gives a canon law. Um, I think I'll go back and read that because I know it's been a few days since I've been reading. So here's how the canon law 203 goes. It's the Christ faithful are those who, since they are incorporated into Christ through baptism, are constituted the people of God. And for this reason, they participate in their own way in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ. So each in our own way, that is what we do. And the rest of this goes, they are called, each according to his or her particular condition, to exercise the mission which Christ entrusted to the church to fulfill in the world. Okay, so we'll get on with this called. The law says that every Christian faithful is called to take part or to participate in the mission of the church. Some of the more immediate questions that can be raised regarding this apparently simple and plain word are the following. What does it mean? Who makes the call? Who are called? And why are they called? For what are they called? Are they people who are are there people who are not called? Why to do and what happens to them? Okay, wait a minute, guys. I'm sorry. I skipped uh, something. I knew that didn't sound right. Forgive me. What then are they supposed to do and what happens to them? It might be good to answer only the more relevant questions and to come and that come to fore by the otherwise elementary term called as used by church law in this particular case. What does called mean? In this instance, the call categorically means a vocation addressed to a concrete person to do something specific. A vocation has three reference terminals. Who is called? What for is he or she called? Who called him or her? Such is the tripod of a genuine vocation. 
in the absence of any of the said three sound footings there can be no vocation in the real sense of the word contrary to common understanding that a vocation is exclusively made to individuals to enter the religious life and or to live in the clerical state vocation as a christian call is addressed also to lay people considering that living the single or married lay state is itself a significant vocation from the good lord who sees to it that people are called it is the father himself through christ in the holy spirit who makes the call in a word it is divine providence that calls concrete persons for specific agenda here and now in the church as they all undertake their pilgrimage to the kingdom hereafter and beyond there is one basic truth that must be said in the matter of persons being called to be this or that to do this or that these even the devil calls individuals the basic difference is this the call of divine providence is properly called a vocation the call of the evil spirit is actually an insidious temptation and this makes a whale of a difference as commonly said why are they called it is said that there are actually three callings first is the fundamental call to embrace the christian faith through the reception of the sacrament of baptism for example the call to salvation second is the complementary call to enter a state of life which is conjugal avowed or ordained for example the call to opted vehicle of salvation third is the supplementary call to enter and practice a given profession to assume a certain work or livelihood for example the call to support the chosen means of salvation but the common denominator of these threefold calls is to engage in the priestly prophetic and or kingly agenda of the church why are others not called in reality there is no one in the whole wide world who is not called everybody from every race color and culture is called the faith and those subsequent realities that go therefore that go therewith are for all peoples the truth however is that while all are called there are those who do not answer the call this notwithstanding according to christ himself the church can look forward to the time when there will be but one shepherd having one fold this is from john 10:16 this means that everybody ultimately answers the call section 12 each according to his or her own particular condition this provision in terms of particular condition is a further specification of the previous expression worded in their own way the legislator is taking no chance that he may not be very clear or not well understood both phrases affirm the reality that while the christian faith are all called to follow christ in his teachings and actions as recorded in the gospel the qualifying reality is that they so follow him everyone according to their respective ecclesial status particular condition and personal circumstance which is your own way 
As earlier mentioned, the Christian faithful is composed of the laity, the religious, and the clergy. This fact by itself already gives a real distinction among them on account of the difference in their respective calling or vocation, and the pursuant variance in the way they follow Christ, qua a priest, a prophet, and a king. The truth is that even within their own sections, among their own ranks, the Christian faithful have their respective personal charism and individual possibilities as to time, talents, and resources. The term condition is better understood when placed side by side with the word situation. The former connotes something permanent, stable, and static. The latter, on the other hand, implies something changing, circumstantial, and dynamic. The conclusion is rather obvious. In the, excise, in the exercise of their priestly, prophetic, and or kingly functions or ministries, what counts most is not really their canonical states of life in the church. Even this condition is still respective of the members of the laity and religious and the clergy among their Christian agenda in their own way. What is truly important is the fact they do what they are supposed to do what they can and actually do. What the members of the three sections of the Christian faith will do according to their respective condition and pursuant opted way, in effect, complement one another. On provisio alone, that they are faithful to their respective calling or vocation, and that they thereby live and act in observance thereof. They, in truth, serve and enrich one another as one people of God, with one vision and one mission, there will be no contradictions in functions, no counteractions among the three ecclesial sections. I want to stop here for a minute. So I want to just give you just my own personal example. So like my vocation, I'm married. And I'm, you know, my husband is, um, we work together on, on, on this journey to heaven. And we work on getting our souls together and, and, and climbing this mountain to perfection, to to someday be with God in the heaven. So along the way, though, we each have vocations. And mine is, um, I'm an advocate. I'm an advocate for voices that um, don't get heard, that uh, often are ignored. For example, um, like the mentally ill. I grew up with a mentally ill sister. Um, it God placed on me this this thing that I have always been able to talk to the mentally ill, and um, we've had some very good conversation over the years. My sister taught me much. So recently, an incident in the church happened when um, I was um, told that I could no longer the that my friend who was mentally ill could no longer be in the church, and from there she was. Um, abandoned from the church, which she had been tending, attending for a couple of years and um, had grown very fond and felt very accepted and wanted. Well, she uh, went through a psychotic episode, and it was while I was in Florida. And um, she ended up um, saying that the priest had um, uh, sexually molested her, which I know everybody goes, oh, my God, oh, my God, I did the same thing. But in that, re in that perspective, I also realized 
as I got to talk to her, she, she, she was in a very psychotic state when I finally found her, and she hadn't been on her medicine. So with that being said, um, the courts, you know, anything that would have happened in the court, um, I even did an affidavit, and um, a lawyer friend of mine, we, we were taking care of all of that part of it. So, so anyway, so she was um, kicked out of the church, banned completely, was never allowed to come back, treated so horribly when she was very sick and all I went and did is asked to try to let's try to work on um, incorporating the mentally ill into our church and I suggested ways to do that with the priest he just wanted her off his radar and it was fear and I understand in this current climate it was fear but it was already basically considered not credible there's a whole history behind this and and, and also the affidavit that I did explaining that what state she was in when I got home and when I found her. So the pot, the bottom line is is that I was told I couldn't have prayer in the bulletin for her and I couldn't have masses said for her. So it, it that broke my heart. That broke my heart that we couldn't even pray for her publicly. Someone who was a vulnerable adult, totally mentally ill and off, off, uh, off her meds, and by the way, when she's on her meds and doing well, she's a delightful person. She has a lot to give. She has a lot of, I always tell her, a lot of color in her soul. So I want to give you this story, and then we'll get back to the book. So I want, to, I want you to think about this, okay? So this is the story of the blemished tomato. This is just something that was in my mind. I was picking um, um Tomatoes, and a friend said that we could um, take the, the tomatoes that wouldn't sell um, sell outright. So they were these beautiful tomatoes with, um, but they would have like cracks in them, and they'd be they'd be oozing with juice. And um, and then you'd, you'd you'd take them and you'd give them to people, you know. Probably otherwise, people wouldn't buy them; they wouldn't pick them in the store. And so, um, but I don't know if you've ever had, picked from a garden. But I cut into one of those tomatoes that are blemished, and I've done this all my life. You cut into them, and you eat the good section, right? And it's meaty, and it's juicy, and it's warm from the sun, and um, the juice runs down your arms. And then, then you look at that tomato, and you look at there's seeds, tons of seeds in there. And so this is how I see, like, the mentally ill, the homeless, the poor, the disadvantaged, who, if you just stop to look, you just see so much. And if you taste them, if you listen to their conversation, and they have so much to give. So should we be just tossing out the blemished tomatoes? That's my thought for the today, you know. Um, think about that. And then think about all those seeds. So like, you know, my friend, um, in her good time, she has so much to give to people. Um, she makes these beautiful little hats that she donates to the poor, to the elderly, um, and they are just beautiful. Um, she colors in her coloring book. She writes um, little speeches that she gives to, to uh, her group um, that are just amazing. She has such insight inside of her, and... Um, and she is now going to another church. And uh, does she struggle? Absolutely. 
I guess what I want to say is thank God that um, that she has medication, that she has doctors. Since this incident, she has a guardian that she um, has helped her so much. She has um, so many different things. And all of this came, it blossomed from that. But I just want you all to see like the, ble the blemished tomato. Um, you know, some, it, can, it can look ugly to people. You know, the homeless can look ugly to people. And some of us are called, back to what we're, we're reading here today in this call of the laity, God gives us each a call. Do I expect each and every one of you out there to understand my call? I don't necessarily expect you to understand it, but maybe be um, sensitive to it. I ask my priest to be sensitive to it, to, to pray for this woman, to allow me in my church to have my community pray for her, to better understand mental illness, to better understand why they suffer. That is all I was ever asking. I am now banned from the church. I can no longer receive communion at that church. I cannot give communion. I cannot read in that church. I used to read. I was taken off the reading. All because, all because of this. This was my charism that, that O.V. Cruz is talking about. Um, and I continue to, to, to ask all of you to think about that, to think about what your call is in a church, and to... Um, to what purpose God has asked you to do. And, uh, you know, so just to consider, just to consider. So when I, when I had to step outside of what I would normally do, you know, um, I've been considered that I'm not obedient, um, that, you know, just, just accept it and, you know, you know, move on, just move on. Well, that's a soul. That soul was brought to our church community. We don't just toss our we don't just toss our family members out that are mentally ill. We don't just toss out our children because they drool or they they uh, they're crippled or um, any of those things that could be wrong with our children, autistic, whatever. We don't just toss them out in our families. Well, our church is our extended family. God brought her to that church, and I believe God brought her to our church to help us each grow, each in our own way. And I'm uh, sorry, but I think my priest missed, missed the boat on that. But it led to all of this. It led to me understanding more about what, what our church, what are we, we do, what do we do in the church, what are we called to do. And that's why I'm sharing this with you. So we're going to go on and we're going to read each according to his or her own particular condition. So I think I already started reading some of this. And let me see where we were at. Okay. Here we are over here. What the members of the three sections of the Christian faith will do according to their respective condition and per pursue an opted way, in effect, complement one another. Okay, I already read this. I think I'm supposed to turn the page. Hold on, let me check. Um, okay. Okay. Order, discipline, and contemplation are the marks of the genuine constituent members of the church. For example, the clergy and the religious are drawn from the laity. It is the laity that the clergy and the religious live for and render service to. 
the clergy and the religious are in turn supported by the laity whom they minister to and work for. Hence, when the Christian faithful observe order and discipline in the church, they cannot but complement each other during their earthly life as they all make their way to the eternal kingdom. Otherwise they could antagonize one another, hamper the growth of the faithful, and divide even further even their ecclesial community. And I do think um, that has happened um, somewhat. I think the division happened, um, you know, when the, when the priest kicked me out um, and told me I could no longer be there. That's dividing and that's creating um, so many hurt feelings and things like that that happen with that. And, um, <clears throat> and then the people like my friend who was banished from the, from the community, and then the others that uh, supported me um, all have different feelings now. And so it does, and, it, and that kind of thing grows. Rather than us sitting down and discussing openly and um, in good conscience um, these kinds of things, and it could have been done. But I do think there's that thing in there called clericalism and power, and those things, um, they just they dirty up the church. They're evil. They're dark. When a priest believes that he has power over you, control over you. He's denying God's um, charism. Any such antagonism or division is effectively translated into wounding the faith, hurting the church. The best-known example of this ecclesial liability is the birth of Protestantism, which, in fact, still goes on dividing and subdividing people, and most probably and sadly in the times yet to come. The next section, exercise the mission. The word mission itself already implies and immediately connotes something noble to undertake. This is true in the secular world, but the more so in the sphere of faith. It is incongruous to call mission such an agenda as the pursuit of something evil, the, per the perpetration of anything immoral or anything ungodly. That is why since time immemorial, the church has ad adopted and used the term mission to signify her sacred work of reaching out to people in order to bring them to know and ultimately to accept the Christian faith. And everything good and holy that necessarily goes there with both for, for their temporal welfare and eternal salvation. What is the mission? To be exercised or undertaken in a clear but profound expression, it consists of the explicit injunction made by Christ to his apostles, go to the whole world and preach the gospel to mankind, to all mankind. That comes from Mark 16, uh, verse 15. The mission then can be said to have three essential elements. First, nothing less than the whole world is the locus of the mission. Second, the gospel is the subject matter of the said mission. Third, nothing less than humanity itself is the target object of the same mission. Without these three components, there would be no real mission as Christ himself mandated. So I just want to take a minute um, and, just, and, and just think about you know, the gospel and think about Jesus. Think about him doing things that were just unheard of in his time touching the leper, um, facing um, 
some demons in um, people's bodies going to them, not running away, not telling everybody to walk away. No, people were following him. They seen the miracles. He showed us the way. That is why he said, follow me. To do the mission as above understood is the basic rationale of the call or vocation of every member of the Christian faithful. The fundamental rationale of the mission is to evangelize and to catechize people wherever they are, wherever there is an opportunity, in or out of season. That comes from 2 Timothy 4, chapter 4, verse 2. Evangelization has direct relevance to the proclamation of the Christian faith. Catechesis, on the other hand, has immediate reference to the growth of the Christian faith received and processed through evangelization. The truth is that doing priestly, prophetic, and kingly words and deeds automatically means evangelizing and catechizing people, in fact, exercising the mission. It is evident that to exercise the mission demands an active, not passive posture. Remember what I'm saying here. Demands an active, not passive posture on the part of the Christian faithful. We are to be active. It implies active commitment, not passive indifference. This is why it is rightly said that every member of the Christian faithful, the church as whole per se, is said to be in a state of mission, permanent, continuous, and consistent missionary activity. The above missionary mandate incumbent upon each and every Christian faithful remains as mentioned above according to his or her particular condition and in their own way. There is one practical question to be raised. Are the sick or disabled, the emotionally maladjusted, or the mentally impaired also enjoined and expected to exercise the mission? Their sad life and pitiful condition are their silent witnessing for others to be evangelized and catechized on such fundamental gospel truths as divine providence, human dignity, and pursuant human rights. They also provide others the opportunities to undertake charitable works. Now, I don't know if you can see in this, this is me digressing, but with my example, with my friend that, that is, you know, like I said, mentally ill, you know, she came to our church. Um, she, you know, was in the community with everybody, having lunch with people, attending mass, um, doing some catechism, uh, going to confession, receiving the sacrament of communion. She was doing all those things. And she was offering us, too. And this is what I tell her all the time. She is made in the image and likeness of God. She came to our church. She was at our church for a purpose. And and this is what I believe Ovi Cruz is saying here. You know, they provide us with the opportunity to undertake charitable works, to um, stand up for human dignity, um, and help us with um, the pursuant of human rights. We are to do this. We don't just say, oh, I can't because my priest said no. You know, that's not how it works. I don't answer to my priest when I get to the pearly gates. I answer to my Father in heaven. I am an advocate. I am called to be an advocate, and that is my vocation. And I'm sorry, Mr. Priest, 
you were trying to tell me to go against the will of my Father. I want you to think about that. I want you to hopefully learn from this situation and to grow. Um, I know God made you my priest in his image and likeness. I know he made me in his image and likeness. And he made my friend, and he put me there. And he said, you can do this, Trees. Not everybody can do it, and that's okay. We each are called to something, each, you know, in our own value. My priest is called to be a priest. But he's also called to help me grow, to help me in my mission. And I think he's lacking in that. But that is not for me to judge. I only pray that the will of God be done in him, the will of God be done in me, and the will of God be done in my friend. And all of those who've seen this, who took part in it, you take part in something even when you're silent. I hope everyone gets a chance to pray and think about why this person came to our church at Holy Redeemer. Okay, let's go on here. Okay, exercise the mission. The word mission itself, oops, I already read that. Okay, here we go. Second, second paragraph. I'm sorry, guys. I lose my, my place, and I stick my finger there, and then it slides down, and then I don't know where I'm at. So sorry. <laughs> so that's what happens when you're dealing with someone like me. What is the mission to be exercised or undertaken? In a clear but profound expression, it consists of the explicit injunction made by Christ to his apostles. Go to the whole world and preach the gospel to all mankind. Oh, I guess I did read this. So I guess maybe God thinks this is uh, something I should read again. So this is Mark sixteen fifteen. The mission then can be said to have three essential elements. And I do think this is important enough to read again. First, nothing less than the whole world is the locus of the mission. Okay, so the whole world, everywhere, this whole world. Second, the gospel is the subject matter of the said mission. And third, nothing less than humanity itself is the target object of the same mission. All of humanity, that's the target. Without these three components, there would be no real mission, as Christ himself mandated it. All right. The truth is that doing priestly, prophetic, and kingly words and deeds automatically means evangelizing and catechizing people. In fact, exercising the mission, it is evident that no exerciser mission demands an act of... It is evident that to exercise the mission demands an active, not passive posture on the part of the Christian faithful. It implies active commitment, not passive indifference. This is why it is rightly said that the, every member of the Christian faithful, the church as whole per se, is said to be in a state of mission. B's permanent, continuous, and consistent missionary act, activity. Well, I see I already read that too. So if you think you heard it before, yes, you did. So we're going to continue on down. All right. Going even further, the truth is that even the dead can be said to be exercising their mission of evangelization and catechesis by lying in a state or when already 
placed in their burial site, the dead are silently yet powerfully teaching and convincing the living that they too will one day end their lives. Wow, that is really profound. I'm digressing. Think about that. Think about when somebody dies in your family, a friend, somebody you've been close to, and they get buried in your suffering. And what you're learning from that, and what you're learning when they die and are gone, um, think about that, and that someday you and I are going to be in that spot. And you're still considered um, evangelizing, even after you're dead. Wow. Wherefore, the living in the meantime should lead upright lives until their time to die also ultimately comes. Furthermore, by itself, the recitation of prayers for the dead tells and reminds the living that there is life after life. And I want to digress here. And so I want to say when, 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 when we talk that we pray for the dead, Catholics pray for the dead, and we continue to pray for them forever, always. And um, when you have a priest that tells you you cannot have a Mass said, which for Catholics, I don't know if I've explained this before, but Mass is the highest form of prayer. And when you have a Mass offered for somebody and, and you ask the church to pray, that all, all goes up to heaven. It's like a sweet fragrance to our Lord that goes up to heaven with that prayer. Um, people are receiving communion. You know, liturgy is read, the word, uh, all of that's happening. And... Um, to have a Mass said for someone is very, very important to Catholic people. So I, you know, I really think our priests missed the boat here on how many people could have grown from this incident and how, I'm sorry, but killing off a person that was made in the image and likeness of God, killing them off and separating them, severing them from, from your church community, rather than banding around them, and getting those people who could help her, who could do this, who had a vocation, who tried to tell the priest that, um, what he eliminated. Okay. So we're going to go on here to exercise the mission. And then we'll end here. The word mission itself already implies and immediately connotes something noble to undertake. This is true in the secular world, but the more so in the sphere of faith. It is incongruous to call mission, let's see, to call mission such an agenda as the pursuit of something evil, the perpetration of anything immoral or anything ungodly. That is why. So my friend is part of God's mission, okay? She ended up at our church. She has a purpose. And I tell her that all the time. Don't ever let someone tell you you don't have a purpose. You do. That is why, since time immemorial, the church has adopted and used the term mission to signify her sacred work. Mission is sacred. Sacred in God's eyes. Of reaching out to people in order to bring them to know and ultimately to accept the Christian faith and everything good and holy that necessarily goes there with both for their, their temporal welfare and eternal salvation. What is the mission? To be exercised or undertaken 
in a clear but profound expression it consists of the explicit injunction made by christ to the to, to his apostles go to the whole world and preach the gospel to all mankind he doesn't say christ does not say here this is in mark 16:15 he doesn't say oh but except the mentally ill oh but except the poor oh but except the autistic children no he does not say any exceptions he says to all the mankind preach the gospel the mission then can be said to have three essential elements first nothing less than the whole world is the locus mission second the gospel is the subject matter of the said mission hold on here i will be right back okay anyways i did i did i go backwards um okay let's continue on here um to do, mission, to do the mission as above understood is the basic rationale of the call or vocation of every member of the Christian faithful. Yeah, I'm reading this again. I am so sorry that I started to read that same, uh, same thing again. <laughs> what are you going to do, Therese? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, you guys can laugh and chuckle with me, but I am going to continue on here. I just got to find out where I was at. <laughs> oh, I need somebody holding my book for me. All right, let's see here. The truth is that doing priestly, prophetic, and kingly words and deeds automatically means evangelization and catechizing people. In fact, exercising the mission, it is evident that to exercise the mission demands an active, not passive posture. Hmm. Wow. I think I need to stop. Okay, so guys, I don't know what is wrong with me today, but I keep losing my page, and I'm sitting at a smaller desk. Maybe that's my excuse. Um, but you're also dealing with somebody who, who makes mistakes. And um, I decided, you know, I'm going to keep going forward. So we're supposed to now be reading from God Entrusted to the Church, which follows the exercise, the mission. All right. I hope I don't lose my place anymore. Pray for me. Okay, everybody. All right. Entrustment is a very serious and profound way of saying that someone or something is deliberately and emphatically committed to the attention and care of another. In fact, in effect, it clearly includes three constituent factors. First, the trust itself, which in this case is the mission. Second, the one giving the trust, which herein is no other than God himself. And third, the recipient of the trust, which in this instance is the church as a whole. Thus, specifically stand at the nature and connotation of entrustment in this particular legislation, viz. the official act of commendation of the mission to a trusted institution, which is the church. 
the mission to preach the word of God to all peoples in all places and at all times is thus formally and expressly entrusted to the church and to no other people, no other institution, no other organization, among other things, this means, first, that the mission to evangelize and catechize is the fundamental concern of the church. Second, that the said mission is under the responsibility and direction of the church. Third, that the same mission is thereby incumbent upon the Christian faithful. The church as composed of the laity, the religious, and the laity again, each according to their particular condition and in their own way. So you think about that. Think about what you do in your church, or maybe you don't do so much in the church. Maybe you do more in your community. Maybe you do more in your workplace, that you you bring God to your workplace by by being and living the gospel with your uh, the people you work with, there are all kinds of ways to to um, to present your vocation and to live out the the gospel, the the Bible, you know, Jesus' teachings, just by following Him, being whatever love you can be to the people in your life. The mission. The composite con- conclusion from such entrustment of the mission of the to the church by God himself comes in the following terms. First, in the event that the mission were badly fulfilled or remained unfulfilled, the church is held accountable for such a failure. Second, whereas the church is the people of God in the persons of the laity, the religious, and the clergy, all three sections are duty-bound. So I want you to tell you, I am duty-bound as a lay person. And when I am called to something, um, I don't have to, I shouldn't have to wait and say, I've got to seek per- permission. When I see a need, when I had and I grew up with a mentally ill sister, I played with her, I sang with her, we grew up together, I knew a mentally ill person. And my mom taught us so much about my sister and how to how to just be with her and live with her. And yet you tell me, priest, shut me down, take me from the altar, no longer let me be part of the church, and kick me out. And I have to go find a new church family because of that, because I did what God asked me to do. I want you all to think about that. You know, God calls us each to our vocation. Should we have to ask permission when something presents itself and you know it's what I considered for me morally wrong not to do something. Okay. The composite conclusion from such entrustment of the mission to the church by God himself comes in the following terms. First, in the event that the mission were badly fulfilled or remained unfulfilled, the church is held accountable for such a failure Second, whereas the church is the people of God in the persons of the laity, the religious, and the clergy, all three sections are duty-bound to fulfill the mission and and each pursuant to their condition and situation. Third, among the section members of the Christian faithful, those primarily considered responsible for the mission and accountable to God are the clergy, especially the hierarchy considering their specific vocation, 
their pursuant life and ministry. So I'm going to digress here. I'm going to put my fingers right there. So hopefully I won't move them. But I just want to say, um, so do you think my priest um, was actually doing what his vocation called him to do by removing me and removing my husband? My husband was just an innocent bystander, by the way. I don't think my husband should have been removed. But, um, you know, that should have been up to my husband to leave and go accordingly. But, um, you know, I, uh, I'm back to, back to that. Is my priest living up to his vocation? Does, is he duty-bound to, to help guide my soul, to be my spiritual director, to listen to me and to, to understand what I'm being called to? Or should he just protect himself and see to it that his um, status, if you will, his status would um, continue on and, you know, everything look beautiful and wonderful. Let it be well noted that whereas God himself entrusted the mission to the church, it is also God who necessarily sees to it that his people have all the spiritual gifts and supernatural graces precisely for them to accomplish the mission agenda, contrary to what was previously indicated as a mere possibility the church which is in, indefectible because of the accompanying presence of Christ wow till the end of time that um that's beautiful that comes from mark 28:20 cannot and will not fail in attending to and accomplishing the mission entrusted to her by the good lord himself wow that is really powerful to me uh, let's see if I can go back and find out where that began because that was really awesome. All right, here we go. It's a long, it's a long sentence, but I think we need to hear this again. Let it be well noted that whereas God Himself entrusted the mission to the church, it is also God who necessarily sees to it that His people have all the spiritual gifts. He sees to it that in his church that we have, each of us have the spiritual gifts to make each other's souls grow. That's what he's saying. Spiritual gifts and supernatural graces precisely for them to accomplish the mission agenda. Contrary to what was previously indicated as a mere possibility, the church which is indefectible because of the accompanying presence of Christ till the end of time. Again, that was Mark 28, 20 cannot and will not fail in attending to and accomplishing the mission entrusted to her by the good Lord himself. As already known and accepted, while church people may be sinful, the church per se, however, remains holy and unconditionally committed to fulfilling her mission. So I have a question for you. So do you think... You know, now that this has happened in, in the Holy Redeemer and, you know, I've gone to a new church and, and everything is working out fine. And, but do you think, too, that um, everyone stands to be able to grow? That everyone that was involved, like my priest, the people, the staff around, um, myself, my husband, uh, all those that were involved with this, the lawyer that helped her get a guardian, her guardian, all these people that were involved with this, um, do you think that in God's plan, um, we all have an opportunity to grow our souls here? And um, even if we were 
even if we were the ones who did the wrong. Do you think God still gives us an opportunity to, to correct that wrong? I do. I see goodness, and I see the image and likeness of God in each of these souls. And each of us have an opportunity to grow here. All right. In a way, such moral weakness and consequent sinfulness are the, ca- the causal factors of the adversities suffered by the church in the compliance of her mission in the course of history. But these adversities, such as scandals, animosities, divisions, and similar errant situations, are all but temporary in nature and occasional in, cur- in occurrence. Con- continuously, the church undertakes her own self-reformation and with the infallible help of God, who gave her the mission. The church has a mission, and it was given to her by God, and the church will succeed. That we know. You know, it goes off course. Scandals happen. Things happen. God brings it back to court, in court, on course, excuse me. And when you think of the, the Old Testament, and you think of um, there was a mission. God had a mission. And through prophets, through so many things, God brought what he wanted into fruition, and he will with his church. In such a way, I'm sorry, in a way, such moral weakness and consequent sinfulness are the causal factors of the adversities suffered by the church in the compliance of her mission in the course of history. But these adversities, such as scandals, animosities, divisions, and simple errant situations, are all but temporary in nature occasional in in occurrence. So I just think that 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 is very important to read again. Continuously, the church undertakes her own self-reformation, and with the infallible help of God, who gave her the mission, she ultimately affirms and confirms her intrinsic holiness through her effective compliance of her mission, according to divine providence. Our Lord is our divine providence. Wow. Okay, so uh, I think I can read this last part. I was hoping to. This will help us finish up this section. To fulfill in the world, a mission to accomplish through a calling to follow Christ in his priestly, prophetic, and kingly office for the evangelization and catechesis of all peoples all over the globe, this is what the Christian faithful must fulfill. This is also known as the universal mission imperative. It is Universal, not only because it involves all the members of the laity, the religious, and the clergy, but also because it has a global scope. It is imperative for no one may legitimately claim an exemption, considering that the mandate falls upon all to observe in their own way and according to their particular condition. The world is not known for its ready acceptance of the gospel truths that are precisely contrary to the worldly spirit. In other words, for one reason or another, of material and or carnal nature, the world remains somehow basically resistant to the practice of virtue, to the acceptance of truth, to the observance of upright living. That is why the world is considered as a hostile place for the fulfillment of the mission entrusted by God to the church. History witnessed how bloody the start of the church was, not only in terms of the plight of her founder, but also with regard to the lot of the early Christians who had to give up nothing less than their own lives to keep their faith in the Lord Jesus. 
that, notwithstanding, it is precisely the urgent and ardent, continuous and consistent fulfillment of the mission that effectively incarnates the Church in all the continents of the world and among all the peoples, notwithstanding the weakness and even sinfulness of some of the Christian faithful themselves. The Church is still the most cohesive, most organized, and unified institution worldwide. In fact, one of the more visible and accepted attributes of the Church is her unity in her universality. This is known as the Catholicity Catholicity of the Church. For example, a a global yet one. So, So Catholics are considered universal. That's what Catholic means, universal, everywhere. And, um, and you know, our vision is global. So that doesn't mean global throwing out people that we think just don't fit. You know, they don't fit that pretty picture. They um, maybe need a little more. That is why God provides in his church community people that can take on those things. You know, to me, the priest should go to the people and say, look, we've got, you know, we've got this, this, this problem and we need some help. We need some interested people. Are you interested in working with maybe the mentally ill, the homeless? You know, we're going to have a meeting and we're going to, we're going to have a brainstorming meeting and discuss. We live in a community here that um, all around us, we are in more of a poor and disadvantaged area here, our church, which our church, Holy Redeemer, is. Um, you know, we should be able to talk. That's universal and global because God didn't say, no, I want you to throw out the people in the wheelchairs. I want you to throw out the people who are autistic. I want you to throw out that person, this person for this reason or that reason. No, he wants to, uh, for us to incorporate them in some way. And, uh, so I think that's, you know, that is what he's saying there. Okay, here we go. The world is not known for the ready acceptance of the gospel truths that are precisely contrary to the worldly spirit. In other words, for one reason or another, material and or carnal nature, the world remains somehow basically resistant to practice the virtue to the acceptance of truth, the, observ- the observance of upright living. That is why the world is considered a hostile place for the, for the fulfillment, fulfillment of the mission entrusted by God to the church. History witnessed how bloody the start of the church was, not only in terms of the plight of her founder, but also in regard to the lot of early Christians who had to give up nothing less than their own lives to keep their faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, I see I've done that again. Uh, So very sorry. Um, That notwithstanding, it is precisely the urgent and ardent, continuous and consistent. Oh, man, guys, I'm sorry. I'm reading this all again. I keep forgetting what page I'm on. So, all right. Yeah, you can laugh at me. Uh, this this is what I live with all the time. So um, if you can live with me, God bless you. It can be rightfully said that among all regions, sects, and other faith movements, it is still the church that has been most seriously and deliberately fulfilling the mission entrusted to her by God through her founder, Christ the Lord. This is not meant to depreciate other creeds or beliefs, but only to forward the truth. Much less is the detestable manifestation of pride, but simply a statement of fact. All these are readily evidenced by the ongoing history of humanity and of the world. The more profound reason for the above 
attribution of the church can be rightfully traced to the following three cardinal causal realities first the abiding presence of christ accompanying the people of god here and now in the world for them to teach their destiny to reach their destiny hereafter and beyond second the continuing fidelity of most of the laity the religious and the clergy in the following listening to and abiding with christ third the unfailing providence of god to his people qua the pilgrims to his kingdom when tired he allows them to rest when lost he leads them back to the right path and when intimately in the internal kingdom they are pilgrims no more they are home i've got one little note here conclusory observations notwithstanding its canonical formulation the law is markedly theological in content we're talking about canon law and pastoral in intent in its substantive composite the law forwards the following three ecclesial elements Um, i realize now that i don't have time to read those so i'm going to go back to that conclusory observations um, on our next talk okay and we're and then we'll wrap up this whole section on the christian faithful i'd like to end with a prayer may the good lord bless this podcast may all of you listening and putting up with me lord um, you picked me to do these readings and so here i am and i'm offering this up for the love of you lord and i ask all these people that are listening to um to think about these things and to think about your position in the church, you know, that we are duty-bound. And, Lord, we ask that all of us recognize um, your will in what we are to do and what our purpose here. In Jesus' name we pray for all of them. Amen.